Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. It's good to be had. I, I love being back here at Grace. Like, a, like you said, I was here while I was going to UT, and I was here for about a little over four years. And my dad was in the military. I lived all over the place. And so four years is about as long as I ever stayed in one spot. And so Grace is my home. I wasn't born here, but three of my four kids were. So yeah, I have, um, I came here with no kids. I came here married with a pregnant wife and I left here with three and I've since added another. So um, yeah, I have four daughters, ages eight, four-year-old twins and um, an 18-month-old. So it is a noisy, noisy house. And I am all alone in the world because there are only women. I tell people I'm having kids till I get a boy or a girl's basketball team. So, and if my wife is willing to start for us, uh, then I think I have my starting five. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as you said, uh, it, it's good to be back in Austin. I love Houston. I love working at Houston Baptist University. Uh, so many wonderful, great things going on. But Houston has been a tremendous adjustment. Everybody I've met here so far, like, oh, you're in Houston now? How, how do you like it? <laughs> and, and like I said, it's a wonderful place, and I really love it. It's been really good for my family, but... As a friend of mine rather poignantly said, it's like living on the surface of the sun underwater. So. <laughs> or as another one of my friends uh, more graphically said, it's like living in the nostrils of God on a jog. So, <laughs> so yeah, you just don't get used to it, man. You just do not get used to it. So um, air you can wear. Um, I got them all. Just keep it coming. So. Um, but no, it really, is, it really is great to be back here. And in many ways, uh, Grace, I, I actually get to count myself as an old school member of Grace. Not like a super old school. Like, have you heard, like, there's like a couple of tiers, right? There's people who, people from the car dealership days, right? Oh, yeah, back in the day, we were in a car dealership. I'm not from the car. But I can, I remember when we opened this building, right? That, I, I remember, um, first time I preached was in the, the, the next door. I remember the first time we opened this building was a Christmas Eve service, and I, I sat right over there. We were crammed in here. It was, it was wonderful. So I feel like it's one of the few places in, in my life where I have a history. And so I come home and it feels like home and I see so many friendly faces and it, it's a place where I feel like I belong and it just fits. So thank you for having me. Hopefully I'll say something worth, worth listening to today. Um, what I do want to talk about today is, as Matt said, I want to talk about Christmas. I want to talk about something meaningful in my Christmas. And I don't want Christmas to be over. See, I was actually glad to see all the Christmas decorations still up at Grace because so many times in America, American Christians, it seems like all they ever do is we sort of let the world define everything and we sit back and shout slogans and try to infuse Christianity into it. So we celebrate Christmas the way the world tells us to, and then we stand up and we shout as loud as we can, but Christmas is the reason for the se- Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet the moment Christmas is over, The world is done with it, and so we are too. But in reality, Christmas, the Christmas season starts with Christmas. It doesn't end. Uh, The 12 days of Christmas, you know the song. Uh, The 12 days of Christmas starts with Christmas and go on through January 6th, which is Epiphany. It's a 12-day feast culminating, starting with the birth of Christ and ending with the commemoration of when the wise men came to visit Jesus. So we don't have to believe uh, to celebrate Christmas the way the world does. We can do it the way we're supposed to. Um, So many times in our society, what we do is we let the world control the nouns 
and all we want to do is infuse Christian adjectives. We let the world tell us what music is, and we're going to have Christian music. We let the world tell us what a holiday is, and we're going to have a Christian holiday. We let the world tell us what work or whatever, and all we want to do is we want to stamp the label Christian on it. It's important for us to remember that Christmas is a Christian holiday first. All of the, all of the things that have accreted to it over time are secondary. The most important thing is the most important thing, and to not let ourselves be... Um, be locked into the way the world tells us we have to celebrate. So I'm, I'm preaching on Christmas today, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be, you're not ready to have the Christmas season over yet as well. How was the Christmas season for you, though? Christmas is hard on people. Christmas, it's weird. It's supposed to be a time of joy and love and peace and all these other things, but frequently Christmas can be so difficult because with the coming of the new year, we're kind of reminded to think about all that's you know, wrong with our lives sometime. We're told to um, why people think we, should, we get families together and suddenly we're reminded about family members who aren't here or maybe in ways in which our families are broken. We think about our, Christ, our New Year's resolution and all of a sudden we're forced to contemplate all of the things that we feel like we failed at the last year. And Christmas becomes a hectic, chaotic time and we, we forget the real reason it exists. Every couple of years, there's, a, there's sort of a word or phrase I, I think about through the entire Christmas season that, that is serves, kind of serves as my meditation. A couple of years ago, it was, it was love. I was overwhelmed and, and, and focused on, you know, John 3.16 during, during the Christmas season, that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that Christmas was, was the supreme act of love. What, what 1 John says, 1 John 4, this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. You know, while we were dead in our transgressions and sin, God sent his son. You know, the Christmas story is God's expression of his love for a good but fallen creation that he desires to redeem. You know, another, another phrase I, I thought about over the couple, over, over a Christmas season a few years back was joy. I was overcome by this passage where it talks about the wise men, and it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And I asked myself, is the way I've celebrated Christmas, does my life, does it show that I've ever really rejoiced like that? Does the contemplation of Christ and and the glory of what God is doing, does it fill me with joy? Well, this year... This year, the word has been peace. The thing that I have been contemplating most of all has been understanding what it means to have God's peace. Maybe because it's a chaotic time with, you know, with four daughters, I don't get a lot of peace around my house. Um, and with all the busyness of life and family and job and vocation and wondering where you're supposed to be and are you in the right spot and trying to figure out life, it's so easy to have peace escape you. And so easy to pursue peace based upon all the different self-help things that we find in, on the internet and in various books. Pursue peace according to the world. But then I come back to what the Bible says. I come back to what, uh, what the Bible offers and promises. What Paul says in, in Philippians, a peace that passes all understanding. I come back to what John says, in, what Jesus says in John 14 at the end of his ministry when he says, I'm leaving, but my peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but my peace. And I think about the shepherds. I think about the shepherds that first Christmas night, and I think about the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. 
peace upon men on whom his favor rests. And I ask myself, do I have that peace? Do I experience that peace? How can I get that peace? Is that peace manifest in my life? And I desperately want to know what it is. And so we're going to look at the shepherd's passage today, and we're going to ask ourselves um, how we go about contemplating and and realizing the peace of God in our life. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. In honor of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, would you please stand as I read uh, the passage out loud? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known to them the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard just as had been told to them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Peace, glory to God in the highest. What is going on here? You know, this passage, it's amazing how sometimes we, we don't realize how we've maybe misread or read things that aren't really there into the passage. We've maybe misunderstood or, or expanded in places we haven't. One of, one of the interesting things about this passage that I find interesting is that how many of you think about, when you think about the Christmas story, you think about Mary and Joseph going through Bethlehem trying to find a place to stay and they can't find one, right? That everybody's everybody's saying, oh no, we have no room for you, as if anybody would turn away a pregnant woman in the middle of the night, right? It's probably not the case. Notice the only way, the only phrase that it says here, it says, when it came time, she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Probably what this means is not that they couldn't find a place to stay, but in a town like Bethlehem, which was very small and probably only had one or two hotels, and now it's glutted with, um, with, with people staying for the census, there was no place for her to give birth. Okay, imagine staying at a Hampton Inn at a convention when a convention is in town, and you're gonna ha- you have to have give birth in this hotel. And the guy says, look, you're going to give birth in, in your room or in that little nook out front where we give you the free breakfast, (laughs) or you can go to the detached garage. I think you're going to choose the detached garage. I think that's, it doesn't say that the owner was trying to forcibly exclude them. It was just simply that there wasn't enough room because it was packed. And the the one place they could get privacy was out in the detached garage. That's what the stable was. But also another interesting passage, another interesting thing that's kind of come, and, and Matt told me that he, he, he gave away one of my secrets on Christmas Eve. One of the interesting misconceptions about this passage is somehow we think that it was a choir up in heaven singing. All of a sudden, honestly, if, if I asked you, if I pressed you, you would think, and a multitude of the heavenly choir suddenly appeared 
and began singing. And you have like, you have people in robes and glory to God. And I, I won't sing anymore, I promise. Um, we imagine a choir, but that's not what this was. That was, it says a multitude of the heavenly host. And we don't have the word host in our, in our vocabulary anymore. Anyone have a different word in their Bible for host? A multitude of the heavenly army. A host is an army. In fact, that's, if, you ever, if you remember the song, uh, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, there's a phrase in one of the, the verses that we don't sing because um, it's third or fourth one and we don't sing all the verses anymore. Uh, the, the, uh, it says, from age to age the same, Lord Sabaoth his name. Lord of armies, because what's the next line? And he must win the battle. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. So this is a multitude of the heavenly army. And all of a sudden the shepherds see him and, and, and they hear, they're saying, and they're praising God and they're not singing, they're saying, in heaven, in the high places, glory to God and on earth, peace upon men who are on his side. Well, what is going on here? What is the thing that we're supposed to take away from this? I find this incredibly fascinating. Well, what's cool is this seems to be a picture of a heavenly triumph, a heavenly triumph. Now, when we think of triumph, we think of a, the, the actual battle victory itself. But that's not what ancients thought of when they thought of triumphs. The battle victory was just a victory. The triumph referred specifically to the tumultuous parade given in honor of the victory. Because think about it, before reporters and battlefield, uh, you know, battlefield cameras and photographers, before Google, before newspapers, before anything, how did you know what happened in a battle? Well, maybe you'd have people come back and give you news. But also, when the battle was over and won, the army would come back and they would celebrate and they would march through the streets. Kind of like it was the origin of our ticker tape parades and things like that, um, that we do to celebrate. But these armies would march through the streets and there would be parade floats you know, commemorating various acts of the battle or heaped up with the treasure and the spoils of the conquered land. And the soldiers would be marching through the streets, chanting about all of the great things that, the, that, that had been accomplished in this victory. And that's what we see here. For a split second, for a moment, um, the shepherds get to see the triumph of God, the soldiers shouting about a victory that has taken place. And they get told they can go see the results of this victory. So I want to look today at this triumph, and I want to see what had occurred that brought this peace, and what are the things that God's triumph that revealed in this passage show us? Well, first, the, one, the first thing that I believe that, that God's triumph in this picture shows us is that it, it opens an unseen reality. These shepherds were sitting in the fields. This is the lowest end minimum wage job working the night shift. Okay, these people are nobody. And all of a sudden, somebody appears to them. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't say he floated down or appeared. It's almost like he walked up. All of a sudden, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Now, imagine you're off in the woods. You know, you're working the late shift, and you're kind of getting bleary-eyed, and, and the coffee hasn't kicked in, and you're trying to you know, accept the fact that you're out, out by yourself making very little money and being up, um, being up late. And all of a sudden, a guy shows up. They were terribly frightened. And the angel begins to say, look, something's happened and you gotta know about it. We're, the, and all of a sudden, an unseen reality gets opened up. They get to see the world as it really is. Now, I, don't, I didn't say a spiritual reality gets seen to them because I think, 
I think the word spiritual can get overused or misunderstood. In America, we tend to think that spiritual means fuzzy, internal, private emotions or experiences. Or we think that, you know, because we, a lot of us don't equate religion with something that we always do all the time and incorpor- incorporates every aspect of our lives. Most people in America think that religion is something that individual people do with their spare time. And so I don't like to use the word spiritual, but it, it is spiritual. And also, we, we somehow tend to think that spiritual means less than real. And it's not. For a split second, they see the world as it really is. Their eyes are unveiled, and they see the messenger of God, and they see the heavenly armies coming back from a victory, and they understand that there's more than they can see going on in the world. How many times are we like this? How many times do we not fully grasp the fact that we are surrounded by um, the, the God at work? There's a spiritual realm. Maybe because of the last 20 years, the bad books that have been written on the subject, if I say things like spiritual warfare, I all of a sudden sound like a TV preacher or something, that we don't like the sound of those, those terms. But look at the Old Testament, you know, 2 Kings 6, Elisha, and all of a sudden his, his, his follower says, um, I don't think we have enough people to fight this fight. And... And Elisha says, there are more people with us than are with them. And their eyes are unveiled and they see the armies of the Lord encamped about them. Think about what Ephesians 6 says, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's it's against spiritual forces that wage war. Do we really believe that there is more to this world than we can see and experience? That there is an unseen reality that is surrounding us, that God is at work even now in our midst, and so many times we miss it. But the shepherds saw it for a split second. They got to see the unseen reality that is the world in which they live. Second, God's triumph occurs in unexpected ways. It reveals an unseen reality. It occurs in unexpected ways. Think about it for a second. Um, the passage, this, this Luke 2 passage, had started with Caesar Augustus. Think about all the the words that the angel had said. The angel had said things like, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you uh, news of peace. A savior has been born, a Lord, a king. All of these things are exact words that had been said about Caesar Augustus. Luke 2, right? In the beginning, you know, during during the time of Caesar Augustus, the decree went out. Caesar Augustus had been proclaimed Savior and Lord. He claimed to bring peace to the world. He claimed to establish justice and restore order. And that was called good news that was heralded throughout the land. Those same exact words were uttered to these shepherds, but not about Caesar Augustus. And not even about a Jewish king in Jerusalem. In fact, he says the word Messiah. He says, I bring you good news of great joy. There is a king, there is a Lord, there is a savior, there is goodness, there is victory. And it's in a detached garage in a a know-nothing town in a backwater province someplace far from here. No place you ever thought to go looking. How would you feel if if this happened to you. You're, you're a, a, a day laborer working at night for very little, and God says, there's a king, he's been born. He, he's, he's in a feed trough, go look. So many times we expect the world to operate the way we think it is. So many times we give, um, 
we give God the um, we give God an instruction list and we tell him do it according to this plan. So many times we get frustrated and anxious with God because when we tell him to tell him to act according to the way we see fit and he doesn't, we get frustrated. God, this is I don't see how you could do it with this set of circumstances and when he doesn't do it, we get frustrated. God keeps reminding us all throughout scripture the message of the gospel from the beginning to the end is that God's plans are not our plans. That what does Jeremiah 29 say? For I know the plans I have for you. It doesn't say, let me tell you the plans I have for you. God is at work doing unexpected things in unexpected ways for his glory and for our good. There are so many things that he keeps trying to tell us. I got this. I'm in control. Just trust me. What does Proverbs 4 say? Um, You know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Lean not on your own understanding. You're not going to be able to figure it out. It's not going to make sense to you. You couldn't read the tea leaves or put all the pieces together. But God plans a whole. He sees farther than you. He knows deeper than you. And he is in control to accomplish his plan. The whole message of Jesus when he's walking around, people ask him, are you the Messiah? He, He keeps saying, yes, but it's not what you think. Yes, but it's not what you think. It's better. It's everything you hoped for and never bothered to think you could, could ask. It's what Paul says in Ephesians. It says, our God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Think about everything from Abraham's taking, taking an old man and saying, I'm going to give you a child and you're going to be the father of many nations. That can possibly happen. Um, think about you know, uh, you know, David sit, being, a, being a shepherd boy out in the field. That's the guy God has chosen. Another 30 years later until he actually gets crowned king. All of these things, God keeps saying, I want you to die to your own expectations and pick up the good dreams I have for you and believe that I can really do it. God works in unexpected ways. One of my favorite examples of this, one of my favorite examples of, of God trying to force us beyond the boundaries that we impose on him, saying that if he can't work in here, he can't work at all, is the passage, it's in Luke later on, where, where a father comes to, his, comes to get Jesus and say, my daughter is sick and she's about to die. You gotta come quick. I know you can heal her. And Jesus gets sidetracked performing another miracle. And while he's performing another miracle, a, a servant comes up and says, don't trouble the master anymore. It's too late. Your daughter has died. And Jesus looks at him, looks him dead in the eye and says, don't fear, only believe. Believe that the boundaries we put on God aren't boundaries God puts on himself. Believe that when you think it's over, God doesn't think it's over. Believe that when you can't figure out how you get from point A to point B, God does. God is actually at work even now to accomplish his plan, and it's a good plan for his glory and for your good. That's going to happen in ways you can't even imagine. Trust. Last, you know, God's, God's triumph opens up an unseen reality. God's triumph occurs in unexpected ways. And last, God's triumph is what offers us an unshakable peace. Think about the word peace for a second. Think about what you think constitutes peace. Think about all of the things you do to get peace. Most of the time, it's imposition of order, right? Somehow getting peace means control. If I could just control the situation, then I can, I am, 
the chaos and the, and the disorder and the noise, it will be all go away and I can have peace. If I could control it or if I could escape it. Most of the time we, we leave the dirty house and we go for a drive, right? We leave, we get away from everything and go find a quiet spot and just you know, go out in the woods, take a meat sandwich and just be. You know, you, you find a way to relax and escape it. We think that's peace. But neither one of those, neither one of those are true biblical peace, the peace of God, the peace which passes all understanding. Those are things that are rooted in your own ability to, to control reality or your own ability to escape it. The peace that, it, that, that is celebrated here, the peace that God has accomplished, the peace that is celebrated by, these, by the heavenly armies is a peace that's rooted in the good actions that God is doing. It's rooted in the trust that there is this unseen reality that you can't even fathom, that maybe we get hints and foretastes of and maybe catch windows and glimpses of, that God does work in unexpected ways and you are even now exactly where you're supposed to be and God is just calling you to be faithful. This is one of the reasons why the shepherds could go back to their night jobs making minimum wage, praising God for all of the things that he's done. They went back to their old life. But the peace that they had wasn't as the world gives it. The peace wasn't a peace rooted in their circumstances or their own ability to control those circumstances. The peace was rooted in the fact that the God they served was active and at work to accomplish his plans in ways they couldn't even dream. You see, God doesn't need our actions. C.S. Lewis said one time that, that he... Uh, most people, when they, when they become saved, they somehow think they did God a favor by getting saved. Yeah, God, I'm here, and I'm willing to be used however you want to use me. I am a skilled and important piece of this machinery, and I am able to, I'm willing to be uh, uh, an important piece of this administration. Um, my intellect or my ability can, couldn't possibly go unused. Uh, you're going to want to use me, God, and it's going to be great. God doesn't need us. And that's one of the hardest things to ever possibly imagine. One of the, uh, one of the coolest things I ever read was uh, the poet Milton, when he, um, towards the end of his life, he had been a, you know, a scholar and an academic his whole life, and towards the end of his life, he lost his eyesight. How powerful a thing to, the thing you were put on this earth to do, to read and to study and to learn and to write, and the ability to engage in that was taken away. And he wrote a poem called On His Blindness, where he actually wrestles with, what do I do now that the one gift that God gave me, I'm powerless to use? And he comes to the, he comes to the realization that God doesn't need our gifts. God gave them to us so that we would have the privilege of co-laboring with him. But we need the gifts because we need to use them that they also serve who only sit and wait. That, that we can't add anything to God by our labors. What, is, what does Psalm 127 say? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, those who keep watch over the city keep watch in vain. God will accomplish his plan. And there's nothing we can or can't do to thwart that. The deep peace of God comes from realizing that God is in control and we are not. That God is around us right now to accomplish his, his plan that we can relax because it's not up to us. That we can be confident and be faithful, be good stewards of what he's blessed us with because ultimately it doesn't depend on us accomplishing the victory. The victory has been accomplished. Where are you today?
how does this all hit you? What is the deep hunger in your life that this is speaking to? Has Christmas been a chaotic time of, of anxiety and frustration? Has your whole life been? Has, has the idea of contemplating a new year, you're thinking, I can't handle another year like this. I don't see where my life is going from here. Are there problems that you, never, you can't see a solution to? Are there anxieties in your life and worries that you are um, struggling with? The answer is yes, because we all do. And one of the hardest things to do is to admit those things and to find a way to accept and embrace the peace of God, the unshakable peace, the peace that passes all understanding, a peace not as the world gives, and accept it into our life. It, it starts with humbly realizing that there's more pieces of the puzzle than we realize, that there is an unseen reality that we can't even comprehend, that we get little insights into sometimes, but we are actually swimming in. It's like trying to show a fish he's in water. It's hard to do because it's the air they breathe. It's surrounding them. God is surrounding you and is actually at work. There's battles going on. There's an unseen reality. Do you accept it? Can you humbly admit that you are just a minor player in this and, and submit to something greater than yourself, greater than something that you can even see or see? And do you realize that God works in unexpected ways? That the whole message of Scripture is trying to get you to lay down your plans, that, that when you take your life into your own hands, when I do it to mine, we break it. We break our life. And God is just saying, lay it down. Lay it on the altar. Lay down your hopes, dreams, worst nightmares, favorite wishes. Lay it on, lay it on the altar and pick up my dreams. Realize that your life is not going to turn out the way you thought. And that's a good thing. That God works in unexpected ways. And that we can humbly submit that our plan isn't our plan that God is at work to accomplish his plan, and we're not going to mess it up, that we're not going to miss God's will. One of the passages that, I, um, that I've been haunted by these last couple of years has been, has been Ephesians 2.10, where it just simply says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has laid out in front of us to walk in. God's not calling us to do anything other than walk the path he has laid in front of us. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, not on the problems, not on the anxieties, not on what we would have done, not the race we would have chosen, but run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He who is the author and perfecter of faith. What does Philippians say? Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it in the time of Christ Jesus. It's not up to us. Rest. Rest in the knowledge that God is in control, that God deeply loves you, and that God is at work even now to redeem his good and fallen creation, that he is about to, he is executing a plan for his glory and for your good. And ultimately realize that this peace, it doesn't just pass understanding. What, is, what does Paul say in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. 
Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not something that you can squeeze out of yourself by acts of religious devotion. You're not going to go home today and go, I'm really going to feel peace right now. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to produce the fruit of peace. Do you have the peace of God this morning? Do you want it? Let's pray. Father, we find it so hard sometimes to lay down our anxieties and fears and frustrations and hurts, our brokenness, our sin, all those things that we do to try and force the world to give us what we want and to turn out the way we think it should. Thank you for the powerful reminder that you are at work even now to accomplish your plans for the world, that you are a God who does make plans, who has a plan. It's a good plan. Help us to rest in the fact that there is an unseen reality that we cannot, that we ex experience or involved in, but don't always experience. Help us to realize there's more going on than we could ever possibly imagine. And help us to realize that your plan is realized in unexpected ways. That just because it doesn't turn out the way we think, that you are the God who can do exceeding abundantly beyond we ask or think. Fill us with your peace, Father. Give us your peace. Peace not like the world promises, but peace in the midst of our circumstances that comes from a deep trust in you, a loving God who is at work even now to meet our needs. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.